When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what you're saying is if a disciple shows up in your room, don't get medical attention. Just uh, just believe whatever he says. I think you should at least get out some milk and cookies. He's at least 2,000 years old at this point. Arthritis is through the roof. Get him some help. Yeah. Hey, everybody. I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are things today, Dan? You know, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. <laughs> Let's not get too, uh, too in the weeds of that, uh, that trouble. Uh, listen, <laughs> listen, it's, it's, it tis the season, man, and, uh, and that's... that's the theme of the show today is is sort of the Christmas season, and all right. Uh, so I, I I figure that's what we need to be talking about. That sounds reasonable, uh, which is unusual for us. But uh, we have a <laughs> we have a guest with us today. Uh, I want to go ahead and introduce a good friend of mine, Aaron Adair. He is a research affiliate in physics education at MIT, uh, and also makes some filthy lucre on the side working for a defense contractor. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me, Dan and Dan. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. We appreciate your time. Uh, Aaron is the author of a book entitled The Star of Bethlehem, a skeptical, um, oh shoot, I don't have a copy in front of me, a skeptical approach. Oh, a skeptical, skeptical view. A skeptical view. Um, now, Aaron, <laughs> uh, as a PhD in, in physics, is approaching the uh, yield star of Bethlehem from the perspective of uh a critical um, physicist trying to better understand what's going on with this tradition. Um, well, and I mean, that's awesome because as anyone who is like me, who like me as a child thought, hey, you know, went out and looked up at the sky and thought, wait, how do you follow <laughs> one of these to a house? I don't know how to do that. Uh, I'm, I, I'm very glad to have a, uh, a physicist on to help answer our questions. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's a very complicated thing. It seems like it just doesn't work. Um, but uh, <laughs> we have someone with a PhD here who can uh, help us figure this out. Uh, we're going to be talking about ideas associated with Christmas, associated with astrology, associated with UFOs and aliens, and all these things that pop up around Christmas time. But I wanted to start uh, with the book. Aaron, could you give us a little breakdown of what you're trying to do uh, with the book? Yeah, uh, just to give it a bit of intro with uh, my uh, history with it, that I first discovered this when I started college and I was able to get a job at the University Planetarium as a show presenter. And uh, Christmas show time comes around and I learn of basically a tradition that's been going on in America Planetaria since literally um, the early 1930s. And I'm sitting in there, you know, watching the show because eventually I'm going to have to also present the show later. But I'm This is how a psych episode starts, doesn't it? <laughs> Perhaps so, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, Continue. But yeah, uh, I'm watching the show and I am uh, blown away with the way of how the story of the star of Bethlehem coming from the Gospel of Matthew is being explained in completely scientific terms. At this time, I um, I was calling myself a Catholic deist. That was my uh, religious categorization. So I'm like, hey, using the uh, laws of nature to get this exact result, that is exactly what the master of the universe would do. He has the power. Uh, sorry, different reference there. <laughs> um, that's a different um, power. But, uh, that's the power yes, of the yes. babe, I think you're referring yeah. <laughs> to. Or or Grayskull, one of the two. I'm, yeah, I was going to say. I was going Grayskull in this case. Grayskull, uh, okay. Yeah, Um <laughs> So I see this, I'm like floored that um, this awesome presentation works. And I remember going home either that holiday or a later holiday and seeing, oh, on TV, they also have a TV special about it. And they were giving a hypothesis and it wasn't the one from our show. And I'm like, huh. And then I also found out, hey, the one in our show requires basically redating um, the reign of uh, important kings and things like that. I realized, okay, th there's a mess here. Let me start looking this up. Mm -hmm. And I realized, 
okra. There's about as many hypotheses as there are people making up hypotheses. And it's like, okay, <laughs> let's try to get to what's actually going on here. Maybe there are these people who study this Bible thing, have a thing or two to say about this. <laughs> and lo and behold, I learned all this uh, history of interpretation, how it's also extremely recent, and that ultimately if you take the text for what it says, it doesn't work. If you yeah. don't take the text for what it says, you still have a whole lot of conundrums, both in terms of interpretation and just general historicity of the tale. I And I think this is fascinating background because as with so many people I know who uh, right now take a rather skeptical approach toward toward religion and, and claims in the Bible, your under, the understanding that you have today do, is not rooted in a desire to tear anything down, is not rooted in a desire to destroy, but is rooted in honest, sincere confusion and curiosity about what's going on here and and seeking answers. And it sounds like initially in a bit of a context of faith, but ultimately deciding, I can't, uh, I cannot be intellectually honest about this and make it work, which is how this works for so many folks uh, who... Whoa, spoiler alert, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought we knew, we already knew this about you, Dan. Um, well, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but uh, I, I just want to make note that uh, for a lot of people out there who think uh, folks who take a, a, write a book and say a skeptical view, that this is not because they set out to, to tear something down, but that because they set out to honestly understand. Yeah. It, and it is worth noting that um, as much as, of course, I'm going to, you know, ultimately go against the actuality of the story, let alone it being scientifically verified, I would still say, hey, once you understand how the story was put together, you can actually see the beauty and the poetry behind it. And that's a whole lot better to me. It'd be like, I could just imagine somebody going in and saying, well, I'm going to debunk Lord of the Rings. It's like, you're kind of missing the point. Uh, only insofar as there are Lord of the Rings-ists out there who are looking for Middle-earth, do you need to debunk them? And then the rest of the time it's like saying, well, look at how the imagery is based on the life and times and uh, mythologies that yeah. uh, Tolkien knew. To me, yeah. that is the more appropriate approach. And the whole either literalist or scientific rationalist approach misses the point um, and unfortunately, when I say missing the point, this was a point made almost 200 years ago by uh, David Friedrich Strauss. I am in some ways only repeating what one guy said in German uh, 200 years ago. <laughs> well, let's start with, before we get to the, uh, the sort of the poetry of the thing, let's start with some of those uh, ideas that you encountered for how to explain this and and maybe you know there may be some people who don't even know what story we're talking about. So yeah. we're on three wise men, not three. Ah, <laughs> aha, I caught myself. The first time I realized that it doesn't say three, it blew my my mind. But yeah, we're on uh, wise men from the east, the uh, magi. The magi, yes, uh, coming in to see Jesus, and there's this thing of a star. Talk about that. Mm -hmm. Talk about what's problematic about it and 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 let's get to some of these these theories about how it could work yeah yeah so the story of the wise guys as we get from the second chapter of the gospel of matthew story is basically first uh give us some setting that this is during the time of king herod the great uh or if you were one of his subjects may not feel he's so great because he was pretty notoriously let's put it very very kindly a mean dude <laughs> uh, especially if you were in his family, holy crud. But uh, the wise men are coming in saying, hey, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star. Uh, translations will differ at this point, but more commonly say at its rising, the traditional one is in the east. So we've seen the star. We saw it rise. Where do stars rise normally? In the east. That's why there's that confusion. And so to say, and now we're here to worship him. Herod, of course, is like, wait, you're coming for the newborn king of the Jews. I'm the king of the... Oh, this is a problem. Uh, so you can just imagine it's like, all right, let's bring them in. Let's, you know, at least, you know, ask some questions, find out what's going on there. And Herod uh, gets some information from them, gets some information from the Jewish scribes in Jerusalem to find out what is supposed to be going on. And basically tells the wise men to, okay, um, go search out diligently for him. And when you find him, report back to me so I too may come and worship him. And every time I think of him saying that I imagine him twirling his mustache in the most yeah. <laughs> uh, early 20th century cinema mustache possible. Yeah. One does question the wisdom of these wise men to go to this guy and, and, and say this to him specifically, <laughs> yeah. but that's okay. That's not the yeah. point of what we're talking about. 
Yeah. And then the wise men go out and lo, again, they see the star uh, that they had seen earlier. And this says the star went before them until it arrived and came uh, over the place where the young child was. The wise men are filled with great joy, enter the house that um, they are in. And of course, note that it's not a house rather than say um, a cave or anything in the other later traditions, enter the house, give gifts. And then they're told the dream, hey, get out of here. And then, of course, later, Mary and Joseph are get told in another dream, hey, get out of here. And then eventually Herod finds out he's been bamboozled, goes, sends an army to slaughter all the babies, or at least male babies in Bethlehem, all the two years and younger. Uh, but of course, our hero escapes. Herod eventually dies. Holy Family comes back at some unknown date. And then after that, we hop into, as uh, what was it, uh, Paul Harvey say, the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, but for our purposes, the most interesting part of that story seems to be a star that goes ahead of guys and guides them to a specific, not like we're talking GPS coordinates here. Yeah. We're talking like straight to a house that yeah. is <laughs> not like any star I've ever met. And you would be correct if you were reading it in that, you know, very direct way. Uh, most astronomers are trying to read it in a multiplicity of different possible ways. One might be that when the wise men were leaving Jerusalem, going towards Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is pretty much south of Jerusalem, they're looking and they're seeing the star in the direction they are going. And when they are saying it was over the house, it was either it was over the house when they were looking or when they got to there, it was basically at zenith, the highest point in the sky. That is how they might try to interpret that bit of text. Though it does lead to an interesting logistics question. Um, when the wise men arrive to Bethlehem, how do they know which house to go to? Do they literally knock on the door at each one and say, you got any virgin births in there? <laughs> right. it's, a, it's a little bit hard to know. Like, you know, at the very least, there is nothing in there demonstrating any sort of um, uh, searching and finding besides the star hanging over the right place. And if you want to see what sorts of problems that can produce, the um, excellent documentary, The Life of Brian, starts off showing <laughs> what happens when the wise men show up at the wrong manger and the... Uh, uh, mother there is just very happy to accept the gifts on the part of the baby. Right. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I do want to ask, so you mentioned the, you know, the star being at Zenith right over Bethlehem. Would it not seem pretty much Zenith also at Jerusalem? Like, like how, how, how close to a thing can you be and the star no longer be at a Zenith over something? It all depends on how accurate your measuring equipment is. And at the time of this going on, they definitely weren't traveling around with a radio telescope array to get like uh, milli arc second measurements of things in the sky. How dare um, you? How do you know? <laughs> it doesn't mention. <laughs> Actually, what we know about astronomy and astrology for um, these guys is going to be another problem, but I'll save that for a little bit later. Um, but nonetheless, most likely all they would have is their eyes for doing any sort of measurement. And no. yeah, the difference in uh, how high up a star is in Jerusalem versus Bethlehem is pretty minuscule. Uh, there's also the issue, the fact I mentioned that they're going south. And the problem is for the star to be going before them, to be going in that direction, that would mean the star is traveling southward, but the rotation of the night sky has everything going from east to west. So quite literally, the star would have to be moving perpendicular to the normal motion of all the stars and planets. The only way that could even be possible is something to like move backwards at the same rate as the sky. And uh, nothing in the nighttime sky does that unless, again, there were some sort of really weird uh, GPS satellite uh, that somehow time traveled to 4 BCE to do this special little thing. Of course, now I'm getting into the aliens, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't want to get out ahead of our skis uh, quite yes, yes. yet. There's uh, I, I know that from the perspective of uh, the study of early Judaism, uh, a lot of my colleagues would say they probably conceptualize this star as an angel because mm. the stars were divine beings. They were considered to be in this time period, most closely linked with angels. And so this could be, they, they speak of it as a star, but it's really uh, an angel flying through the sky. But I, I had a question about this idea of the star at, the, at its rising. When, when I hear from uh, people who are uh, hip deep in astrology, they'll talk about the rising of 
uh, the stars. All I can think of is uh, Pisces Virgo rising is a very good sign, strong and kind, <laughs> and the little boy is mine. That's all I know about rising stars. But um, but does do you think the rising here has to do with constellations and uh, the different signs? Or do you think that's so, reading something into it? I think it's reading in, but I do want to, of course, give the, the fuller story here because this phrase has been probably the most contentiously part of uh, translation of interpretation. Like if I look at KJV versus NIV or versus other ones, this is probably the point you'll see the greatest diversity and discussion. Mm-hmm. So the Greek there itself, there's ambiguity because the underlying word anatole uh, can mean either east or rising. It comes from the verb anatello, but where do things rise? Well, they rise in the east. So mm-hmm. that's why there's that kind of complexity there. Yeah. And depending on who's interpreting this phrase, they might be thinking the wise men who were from the east were, were in the east when they saw the star. That's one way some people have tried to interpret. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I say, the much more common version now is to interpret this as the actual rising. And yeah, as you mentioned, rising of stars is often an important part of any sort of given horoscope. In uh, horoscope, literally the rising point is one of the uh, cardinal points in a given uh, horoscope. So if you go have someone write up a horoscope for you, first off, why are you wasting your money? But secondly, um, <laughs> one of the things they're going to care about is your exact date and location of birth so they can um, put uh, four different coordinate points on your zodiac and then figure out what was rising, setting, what was at the high point of the sky, etc. And Some have also argued that the phrase being used by Matthew is even a more specific term for something called a heliacal rising. And this would be specifically something rising just before sunrise. So the very first rising of a star, uh, just barely outside the glare of the sun. And that is um, even more uh, precise then, if true. And of course, if you're getting such precise wording in there, then you might be saying, hey, is this some sort of at least artifact of an astronomical or astrological uh, belongings there. Uh, Problem is we know what sorts of terms are used that are more specific. We literally actually have school textbooks that explain the difference between anatole and the word that is actually the technical term for heliacorizing epitole. So it's like if Matthew was trying to use the scientific term, he decided not to. Oops. Mm But the idea that there's not unless this rising is interesting to me. And one thing I've been exploring beyond what I've done um, earlier, because the idea of a early rising star or a star rising, especially, you know, a little bit before sunrise, that would make it a morning star, which is, for example, one of the titles for Jesus in Revelation and Second Peter. The morning star seems to have some other interesting connotations that I've seen in some other Jewish literature that I've actually written an article up on. I'm hoping it'll finally get uh, published in the not too distant future, but we'll see what happens there. Mm-hmm. Key thing then is if this is also a morning star, this actually gives us another avenue of seeing what sort of imagery was the author going at. There's in particular another magical guiding star in um, Roman mythology that Mm. is perhaps a precursor to the story. Uh, We find hints of it in the Roman epic, um, the Aeneid, which is basically the story of Aeneas, one of the last survivors of Troy, who then with him and his um, surviving Trojans are basically divinely uh, mandated to travel from Turkey to their new homeland in Italy and then right. become the Romans. Right. And in uh, chapter two uh, or scroll two of the Aeneid, you actually have this other magical star that's supposed to guide them from Mount Etna to their new home. And the imagery of this has been adjusted to it can match also a different magical star, the one for the glorious ascension of Julius Caesar that he turned into a comet and flew up into heaven, according to various sources, literally became part of the cult of Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we have some other comments saying the older version of this myth of Aeneas being guided by a star was specifically by Aeneas, uh, Aeneas's mama, um, Aphrodite or Venus, and specifically Venus uh, in her morning rising. So the text that actually say specifically, this was Lucifer as their guide and not right. that Lucifer, the, 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 the kinder, brighter Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> Which well, obviously related to uh, Isaiah, where we have the, mm-hmm. uh, the sarcastic reference to the king of Babylon as uh, Halel ben Shachar, which is just shining one, son of the dawn, a reference to mm-hmm. Venus, later translated as Heosphoros and then Lucifer in the Latin. Oh, it's a it's a big uh, tangled mess, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, I want to yeah. I want to untangle a little bit and go back to because Dan, you know, you've given us a good uh, like it, for a believer, 
the the explanation that it was just that it was uh, an angel is a wonderful explanation. For a physicist, it doesn't do us any good at all. Oh no! So <laughs> I want to get back to some physicist-related uh, explanations for what what this could mean. I want to know what the planetarium thought. I want to know. I want to know some of these some of these uh, physicist uh, physics-based ideas of what this could possibly be. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the most common explanations you will see coming out of the more scientific literature is a combination of either a comet, a supernova, which is an exploding star, um, or it's some sort of combination of the planets, especially in what something is called a conjunction. The technical definition of a conjunction is when two planets are basically on the same line of latitude on the celestial grid, but more commonly just to say when two planets are, are very close together. There have been a few conjunctions of note that are pretty interesting. In fact, it was back in 2020 that people were saying, oh, this is a recreation of the Christmas star. It was an extremely close conjunction of Venus and Jupiter where they became very close, almost close enough that the two would kind of blend into each other and then it would look like one big bright star. And I remember we that. I went, out, I went out to see that. I went up on a mountain to, uh, to look yeah. at it and they, they, were, they were not that close. I'm just going to say, <laughs> they, were, they, they weren't even touching. Wasn't it just the yeah. light on the sewer treatment plant? That, uh, was <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, maybe with a little extra glare, then it became that way. Yes. Um, there was a much, there was even a closer one back in early one BC, if I remember correctly, where the two were close enough that, yeah, it would have actually been hard to distinguish the two. And they would say, oh, this extremely close conjunction, that must've been the star of this, you know, extreme brightening. And, um, you will also now get that not just in planetaria, there was a BBC four-part miniseries of the Nativity Story from 2010, if I remember correctly, and they also use that sort of explanation. Um, um, I actually even had a little bit of conversation with the director by email saying that, yeah, they like purposely try to make it sound like when the planets were moving, you hear like all this like mechanical noise, like it's a giant mechanical clock for the mechanical universe, making everything <laughs> perfectly aligned just as God ordained, you know, effectively from the beginning of time, Yeah, uh, which again was young Aaron's view of how the universe worked. <laughs> so a, a big old Antikythera, a big Antikythera <laughs> mechanism going tick, 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 tick. Oh, wow. Yes, yes, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I mean, the, the view for that is if that sort of thing is true, especially the planetarium ones, is that we can know the locations of the planets with extremely high precision thousands of years ago. So if we can say, hey, here's what the uh, Bible is describing, if this is what Matthew's describing, we can use that to basically run the clock back and find out the date of either Jesus's birth or the arrival of the wise men, some aspect of the story that we can now like pinpoint and, of course, deal with some of the other problems. Like everyone has been noting for a long time, hey, the uh, Matthean story and the Lucan story about when things happened aren't really directly reconcilable. If we could have any sort of better information to get this down and if we can use the power of science, <laughs> then then we are in much better shape. And a lot of this effort has been to like, you know, exactly pinpoint where, when Jesus came into the world. And also a big chunk of it has been literally um, to push back against skeptics and atheists and deists. Um, the earliest versions of Star Bethlehem theories I can see are literal direct responses to English deists. Mm. Well, yeah. So, uh, I, I, and then thence came a, an entire sort of cottage industry of trying to explain biblical uh Difficult biblical conundrums. Yes, <laughs> uh, using using the powers of science. Very uh, diplomatic, there, Dan. Yes. Um. <laughs> hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. 
Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I've actually also been surprised how relatively recent uh, it has actually completely switched over to the scientific side. So there Mm. were some Bible scholars in the late 18th, early 19th century pushing this idea in the um, uh, rationalist school of interpreting. So all the various myths of the Bible, Old and New Testament, these were all naturalistic things misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the key example that's often given is a guy by the name of Heinrich Paulus writing in the 1820s. And he's pretty much the epitome of this sort of thing. He's collected like the last like 30, 40, 50 years of this sort of stuff. And every single miracle story of Jesus, just slightly misunderstood story. So Jesus walking on water, uh, it was a dark and stormy night. The disciples uh, had completely lost their sense of direction being tossed around and didn't even realize that they had actually crash landed on the beach. So when Jesus was walking along the seashore, <laughs> it looked like Jesus was walking in water. Yeah. Complete total accident that uh, they thought that he was <laughs> literally walking in water. Repeat that thought process for every single miracle yeah. story, including the resurrection. Well, that, that seems like a pretty natural outgrowth of the debate that was going on between the ideas of rational religion and revealed religion in this time period, particularly with deism, that you're exactly. going to have people saying, oh, this is all reconciled with what we are now learning about uh, the natural world around us. And then you have the the pushback. Uh, and then in the 19th century, we have evolution. We have uh, the origin of uh, African peoples. We have slavery. We have all these things kind of bringing this all to a head. Um, and we're still experiencing a lot of the fallout of this kind of stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. Aren't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, and while... It, later in the 19th century, there are occasional attempts by some Bible scholars. The last hurrah within anything like within biblical studies that I could find mm-hmm. was in the early 20th century. And you could see the debate being summarized and actually being interestingly poo-pooed by, oh, goodness, why does his name escape me all of a sudden? Um, uh, Quest for the Historical Jesus author. Name just escaped me. Yeah. Uh, from Freda uh, Schweitzer. Uh, Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer. Yeah. Yes. In the second edition of that, which is less read, there's an uh, extra appendix where he talks about the summary of things that happened since then. And the thing that's actually interesting to compare is his treatment of the last few people who are trying to like find these rational explanations for the star of Bethlehem and the Jesus mythicists. And he seems to give more credence that the debate that Jesus mythicists are actually having is more worthwhile. And while the star of Bethlehem people are like, dude, it's been a hundred <laughs> years. We, we understand how this works now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> just stop that debate. So you can see that that sort of attitude and, and Schweitzer was no mythicist, but mm-hmm. if you can see like saying he'll at least give the mythicist argument at the time of day, this one is like, no, I don't even want to see it. Just stop, stop. <laughs> that was this condition basically early 20th century. It's basically gone. And it only really, really picks up in the scientific literature because of um, an article written in nature in 1977. And as you can imagine, when something is written in the journal Nature, the, probably the most prestigious science journal, mm-hmm. um, it gets a lot of attention. And that has kind of re-exploded a lot of the um, research by uh, more science-minded people, which also means people who are completely divorced from the conversation that happens in biblical studies, uh, the people who don't go to seminary, who can't read the underlying language or know the underlying myths. Well, they can they can go to social media and they can find plenty of representatives of, uh, of all of those kinds of arguments. I'm I'm surprised by how frequently 19th century, uh, like hobbyist literature, gets cited by folks when it comes to things like uh, Star of Bethlehem. Trying to naturalize miracles, you get a lot of people citing a lot of things that were published in the mid 19th century. Not even aware yeah. that there might be an issue with the fact that nobody brought this argument up uh, in the last 175 years. Oh, so yeah, if, yeah. So, Aaron, if you were Ken Ham trying to do his Star of David uh, scientific apologetic attraction theme park, what would be your go-to scientific explanation? What, what do you think is the strongest one hmm. for someone to, to, to try to use? Hmm. Okay. You probably would have the best way of doing that with some sort of 
conjunction planetary hypothesis because one, we will know exactly where the planets are. And we do know that this was something that was important to many people in antiquity. The motions and positions of the planets was uh, uh, sometimes a little too important to the Romans. Uh, occasionally, the Roman government would like ban all the astrologers to make sure that they can't be there to write bad horoscopes about the emperor. Uh-huh. Um, but of course, the emperor himself would keep his astrologer or astrologers. So we know there's that importance. And the fact that we can very precisely calculate what's there with comets, uh, if it's not recorded, we won't know it was there. Um, and we probably know very little about the exact orbital parameters of the comet unless we had like lots and lots of records, which we probably wouldn't have anyways. And conversely, we also know that nine times out of 10 comets were interpreted very negatively. The very few times that they are, somebody has to come along and fix that supernovae, the exploding stars again, without an actual record, we probably can't find that. Though I will note that if we have the right sources, maybe a comet could work because I Uh, In digging for any examples of people interpreting comets in antiquity or in the Middle Ages as something positive, I found an interesting one from the Byzantine Empire under the uh, time of uh, Alexios I, the um, uh, emperor uh, who was also the one who started the whole crusade business or helped start the crusade business. Mm. Apparently, uh, he was having plenty of wars with the Franks, basically people from Western Europe. And there was a comet in the sky and his astrologer was supposed to try to figure out what this meant. Astrologer is having a hard time. He goes to bed. He's up in a locked room. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and lo and behold, in his room is John the Evangelist, not a vision, the John the Evangelist. Uh, is in the room there to help explain to him what the comet is actually supposed to mean and how it's actually bad news for the invading armies, not the Byzantine army. So <laughs> if if an actual disciple enters your room and can explain things, that is probably the best way to figure out what the real star of Bethlehem was. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's a useful that's a useful tool. Uh, so what you're saying is if a if, if a disciple shows up in your room, don't get medical attention, just uh, just believe whatever he says. <laughs> I think I think you should at least get out some milk and cookies. He's at least two thousand years old at this point. Arthritis is through the roof. Get him some help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, from okay, from the scientific, uh, I know that you also looked at um, some potentially wackier ideas. Uh, I've I heard the word aliens mentioned before. What? Give, give us some uh, some. Let let's get in. Let's have some fun here. Let's explain this thing. Well, here's the thing. Amongst the actual scientific hypotheses, the ones that don't require miracles, the alien one actually would fit the data the best. Can an alien spaceship look like a star? Sure. Can it move in these sorts of motions that are described? Yeah. Can it hover over a particular location? That's what they do in the movies. Uh, So at least conceptually, can it fit all the description points? Yes. It might be a little bit weird to refer to an alien spaceship as a star rather than as a boat or some other bit of verbiage, but we could just accept that little bit of saying, well, it was you know so shiny, it was shiny like a star, fine. The problem, of course, then is you have to posit not just the mere existence of aliens, but super advanced aliens, super willing to travel the hundreds, if not thousands of light years to go here just to what, mess with a few shepherds, uh, a couple guys from Persia. Uh, It it seems a little bit disproportionate. They've traveled all this way just to act like a little blinking GPS satellite for potentially a few people, maybe three, maybe 300. We don't know, of course. The thing is, though, I'm not making this sort of thing up. Uh, The earliest versions I've seen of the UFO hypothesis come from the 1960s. And again, it was against like this wave of um, seemingly growing atheism and secularism in the West and attempts to push back against that. And so take all the miracles of the Bible, aliens done it. Well, there, problem solved. No no miracles needed, and everything is completely uh, scientifically kosher. And um, thus the History Channel was born. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, unfortunately, the hypothesis I've seen multiple times on ancient aliens is the UFO explanation of this. Um, I know it's been on there twice. It could have been there three times, but I have the problem that I can't, keep watching ancient aliens it's too expensive because every time it's on i end up throwing things at the tv and have to buy a new one it's just too expensive to keep watching for me so there there are all there are all kinds of different um ideas that are out there on social media related to christmas and things like astrology things like aliens uh the anunnaki uh things Mm -hmm. like that let's get into some of the more interesting ones because i know you've been you've got another book out that is discussing some theories of uh, of aliens and UFOs and religion, but uh, yeah. let's talk about some of those ideas that intersect with with Christmas. Are there? What do you think is uh, one of the cooler ones 
that you've come across? Oh, uh, specifically with aliens or just pseudo scholarship in general in Christmas? Pseudo scholarship in general in Christmas. But bonus points for having aliens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know um, one of the things you've gone at a couple of times in your TikTok channel is the various uh, claims that come, especially from Zeitgeist, about, um, oh, the star in the east was actually Spica in the constellation Virgo, which is the virgin. And so this is also about uh, the virgin birth and. Uh, Virgo Lots is carrying grain, which means bread, and it's the house of yeah. bread. That's Bethlehem. All, yeah. And the three stars of Orion's belt pointing to that on oh. Christmas Day, uh, the three stars being the um, three kings, and just about everything is wrong, including the science <laughs> of it, actually. Um, oh, I, you ruined it. It was good. I was getting into it. I was. This is going great. You guys were making fun, but I was there. I was yeah, with um, it. In my early YouTube career, I tried doing a video debunking of this where I took like one of the images from Zeitgeist and showed, well, they're claiming on December 25th, the three stars of Orion point to the- Is it the rising uh, sun? Yes, the rising sun. Yeah. And the problem is the direction that they point where the sun will rise never yeah. happens. <laughs> yeah. uh, you can check that like, that's not even where the path of the sun would even go. So when will this happen? Somewhere between never and ever, ever. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like, wow, the, the, the basic astronomy is wrong. And of course, I'm not the first person to notice this. I literally found in the comment section of a late 19th century um, engineering journal, this like back and forth between people arguing about this. One of them was an actual like amateur astronomer, uh, Edwin Maunder, who's actually famous for this book called The Bible and Astronomy from like the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, and also, um, if you ever heard of the Maunder Minimum related to sunspot activity in the sun, it's named after him and his wife doing sunspot research. But literally... I see in this comment section, like in this back and forth, like editor notes to the editor section of this engineering journal from the late 19th century, basically someone coming in, making the zeitgeist like claim about that pointing and Maunder coming and saying, hey, astronomer here, that doesn't happen. And the person comes back, what do you know about? And I'm like, God damn it. I just found 19th century Reddit. <laughs> but this shows just how debunked this is. It's like, no, astronomers have yeah. known this was wrong before my grandparents were born. So my one, goodness, this should have not been seeing the light of day in modern YouTube days. One, mm. of, one of the ones that I've, that I've seen a lot, particularly this year and, and a little bit last year, but I see it even more this year, is this idea that, um, well, December 25th is, is not the actual winter solstice, but the claim is that the sun is in the grave for three days, and then the 25th is the day when it rises from the grave, and then it rises on the southern cross, so Jesus is dying on the cross. Um, and, and maybe you know this better than I do, but from what I can tell, the southern cross, because of the procession of the equinoxes, was not even visible to anybody in this part of the world anywhere near uh, any potential birth of Jesus. But additionally, the sun is constantly moving. It is not holding still for three days between the um, winter solstice and the 25th. These are, yeah. these are things that are being read into or being made up and asserted for this period, similar to the zeitgeist stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, just so also for the whole audience to know, when we're talking about precession of the equinoxes, this is an effect that not only is the Earth rotating on its axis, but the axis itself has its own um, uh, rotations. And this is the precessional period, which is on the order of tens of thousands of years. We have actual uh, ancient knowledge of this. This was first discovered by Hipparchus in the second century BC. And his estimate, this was about one degree per century. So this cycle would be about 36,000 years Modern estimates put it closer to 27,000, which still, I have to say, an effect that takes tens of thousands of years to complete, being noticed and being within any appreciable accuracy is still, wow. Yeah. Um, but to also do those measurements, they also knew about, like, say, the limitations of their equipment. And from what I could tell, like, Hipparchus was like, well, I'm going to measure, like, the length of the year from, uh, not from, like, uh, solstice to solstice, because it's kind of hard to tell when is the sun at its lowest. And even when the sun is at its lowest, it's not just hanging there in the sky. It's still moving from east to west all the time. It never right. stops, especially not in, like, the stops like it did for Joshua stops sort of story. It's hmm. uh, It stops in one direction while still moving the other way. It's like, okay, yeah, it stopped turning its wheel, but can you really notice that in such a time frame? Not without much more sophisticated tools that the ancients even said, hey, we can't measure this accurately enough, so we're going to use not the solstices, but the equinoxes to measure the length of um, the solar year. And it was very careful measurements of that that allowed Hipparchus to do his 
observational work and realize, hey, there seems to be an additional motion. that uh, So there's a difference between a solar day and a sidereal day uh, that differs a tiny amount. And there's difference also then because of the, uh, the uh, precession of the Earth. So amazing work that these guys did. And none of that is known or understood by so much of the other stuff is out there or the other claims about the precession, the equinoxes. So what is it? Uh, Hamlet's Mill projecting the idea that the procession of the equinoxes was known by all ancient peoples for thousands and thousands of years. Um, even though, again, this is something that you can't see with the naked eye. It took extremely precise measurements separated out by a couple of centuries mm -hmm. to get just a close enough to say within like 50% accuracy of what the actual measurement is. It's like, no, you can't just look and say, oh, look, uh, the uh, there's procession going on. You can't see that. Uh, will you explain yeah. what procession is? I don't know what that is. It's, a, it's literally if you have like a spinning top. Uh -huh. That's spinning on its axis, but also it's doing that wobble. Okay. That wobble is the procession. I see. Um, and also, if you want to impress people, there's also a bit of up and down of the um, axis itself. That's called notation. And a top will go through all three things. And if you take all three forms of rotation, then you've completely described the rotational motion of any given three-dimensional body. But the effect is that the constellations that might be just above the horizon, um, they go down and up. Um, and so yeah. the Southern Cross was actually below the horizon and invisible to people in that part of the world for several centuries. In fact, I think yes. it doesn't pop up again until like 14, 1500 CE. Not to mention to the fact it. that if we're talking about Jesus dying and like three days resurrection, the cross, um, that would make it Easter. Not Christmas. That would not be about the birth. <laughs> That's about the death of a guy. Right. So maybe but, we should be talking about Easter is the is the twenty twenty fifth of December. Well, the the idea, the about. argument is that this is the inspiration for the story. This is the mythicist account that they made up the story of Jesus based oh, on wow. this. And so mm -hmm. the idea that so the they're reading this back into ancient history, saying they thought the sun died for three days and then rose on a cross. And so uh, obviously Jesus was just taken from that ancient tradition. Um, although again the data don't remotely support the notion that, that any such idea existed anciently. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause you can, yeah, uh, science as, uh, as the great poet said, <laughs> science. Um. <laughs> when Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Oh, so uh, do you have any uh, do you have any uh, any fun alien ones that are associated with Christmas, or are most of the alien ones um, oh. another time of year when it's a little more seasonable for them to be out and about? Well, it sure sure seems like it's the most connected to Christmas to help explain. Yeah, the uh, 
the light in the sky, the original UFO story. So, I mean, it has that somewhat obvious connection. But um, uh, like I say, when if you're trying to explain all the miracle stories with aliens, then, yeah, they have to show up. And so they must be in hovering over Jesus. So, again, how is he walking on water? It was because of the um, teleportation beam or um, uh, tractor <laughs> beams that the uh, aliens uh, mothership would use. And, of course, in a sense – you have actually seen the alien version of the resurrection of Jesus if you have seen the original The Day the Earth Stood Still, because Klaatu is basically coming from the heavens, giving a message of needed peace and otherwise destruction if uh, you know people don't get with things. He is killed, um, brought back to life, and then ascends uh, to heaven again after giving a final message of uh, an apocalyptic end. So um, it was basically as close to the Jesus story as 1950s America would allow in cinema. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Until, I, you know, uh, if you're looking for aliens and Jesus, there you go. <laughs> it, it occurs to me that there that there is a sort of progression here that the that the the bringing in of aliens as a as a sort of as as a replacement for divine, for want of a better word, magic, is is just a progression along the same line. Uh, it it's it still doesn't, you know, it has some explanatory power uh, in yeah. terms of figuring out how something might have actually happened. And yet, uh, is there any evidence behind any of it, or is it just <laughs> speculative in the way that we would that that ancient peoples would talk about uh, miracles? Uh, it, it's ultimately, yeah, just like um, a lot of like armchair um, speculation, but in a way that makes it so all of a sudden the story goes from unbelievable to believable again. And that's really a lot of the purpose there. It's kind of the same way of how people will reinterpret um, uh, predictions of the end of the world or the second coming of Jesus and that. And of course, it doesn't happen as expected. And so something has to come along to reinterpret it. So that way it could still have that sort of theological or political force. Same sort of thing, and sometimes even explicit, like saying, by explaining this story in terms of the natural instead of the supernatural, then we make it so the entire story is believable again. And, oh, it's you crazy atheists that are trying to take this all hyper-literally and make it look ridiculous. Um, uh, I actually remember reading that in uh, the apologist, uh, Izzy uh, Mengsen, uh, early 20th century apologist out of Princeton. Uh, he writes this giant book about the... Uh, virgin birth and say how it's like totally real. And then he's trying to, of course, you know, look at anything else in the Bethlehem or the um, birth story to try to make sure his bases are covered. And he's like, well, if you, you know, interpret the Bethlehem star story as, you know, this hyper literal thing, you're just, you know, trying to make it look dumb on purpose, even though he also goes on and says it's totally believable as a miracle as well. So he's not even totally consistent, but just enough to say is like, hey, stop making fun of this. It's totally real. It's also exactly as the fundamentalists think it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this this is... Part of the pattern of of um, kind of the apologetic approach, which is primarily designed to perform for the folks mm. who want to believe, uh, you are coming up with with new ways to try to make it meaningful and useful, and and ginning up things that are not necessarily probable, not necessarily even plausible, but just something that you can claim is not impossible. Well, if you mm-hmm. imagine this scenario over here and then this scenario over here, and then if this also happened right at the same time period, but right after this, and you're making up all of these scenarios, but because none of them are literally impossible, you've ginned up a tiny little sliver of not impossible, and that's enough room for the folks who really want to believe to operate, to feel yeah. comfortable in this all working out. But it sounds like once the 60s come around and you've got this UFO fever that suddenly this becomes the new... Uh, the new hip explanation, and now we've got the Anunnaki um, uh, that a lot of people, for some reason, yeah. um, are are appealing to because it serves their own ideas about um, you know DNA manipulation and and alien life forms and yeah. and all of this. Yeah, I don't know um, what that is. What's what is the Anunnaki? I don't know what that is. Dan, I think you'll be able to say better than I. <laughs> uh, so um, Anunnaki is this idea that uh, Anunnaki is a, is a word originally it comes from Sumerian, Anunnakene. Uh, it gets transliterated into Akkadian uh, as Anunnaki, and it's just a generic class of deity. Uh, there are the Igigi and the Anunnaki in some of the later literature, two different classes of deity. But there are a lot of folks out there who want to treat the Sumerian literature as kind of the original Bible, 
and the biblical text as kind of a later kind of not perversion, but extension of what's going on. And so it treats it all as one story and so tries to interpret everything that's going on in the Bible through the lens of these Sumerian ideas. And this is really um, Zechariah Sitchin in the 1970s wrote this book called The Twelfth Planet, arguing that based on the Sumerian idea, there's a Sumerian creation account where um, there are a few different creation accounts, but where the gods are creating humans initially as slaves, and then they get sick of them. They're keeping them up at night, so they uh, try to kill them all, but one of the gods saves some of them. And um, but Zechariah Sitchin was like, the Anunnaki are aliens. They came to Earth seeking resources. They needed gold because gold is uh, things they get to hang in the atmosphere to try to uh, reflect a lot of the harmful rays from the sun. And so uh, they were, were basically exploiting the resources on Earth and enslaving or they used uh, DNA manipulation to create humans and blah, blah, blah. And so then they bring in the story from Genesis 6 of the B'nai Elohim, the children of God, having relations with the daughters of humanity to create this, um, you know, kind of these uh, this abominable race of of giants and Nephilim and all this kind of stuff. And, all right, and you so, talked me into it. I'm, you can yeah, stop. I, I believe you. I believe you. It's I true. Have it's my, all the true. Newsletter, the newsletter is on the way. Um, but... <laughs> But yeah, this you see this stuff all over social media, um, and yeah. they they bring in Christmas, they bring in uh, the resurrection, they bring in Thoth, uh, and Atlantis uh, has a role in sure. in the way some people are reconstructing all of this. But it, it's Lemuria? a way you got to get Lemuria in there. <laughs> I'm I'm almost positive I have seen that come up in, uh, in one of these <laughs> in one of these arguments, but. Uh, um, but yeah, what, what this is, I think, is an attempt to say we have, it, it's like secret knowledge stuff. There's this yeah. big conspiracy. Everything's a cover up, but we've cracked the code. We've unlocked this. And now you and I share this secret knowledge and we're smarter than everybody else. And everybody else is clueless and just wandering around. They're, they're in the matrix. Um, so yeah, you, it, you better be careful because the next thing you know, we're, Aaron's going to tell us that the earth is actually a sphere and not, uh, and <laughs> well, not flat. An oblong one, I will at tell least, you that, because uh, of the spin. But. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I will tell you that at least Lemuria was originally an actual scientific hypothesis. There was a uh, uh, hypothetical continent to explain how basically old world monkeys and new world monkeys were able to like get across the world by yeah. um, this path. And how did the lemurs get there? Through Lemuria. So, yeah. And then that continent sank. Um, this was before plate tectonics. And so it's uh, yeah. uh, pre-modern <laughs> in that sense. But uh, I- at least it had a scientific pension for at least five minutes. And I am I'm one hundred percent positive somebody brought up Lemuria. No, no, Lemuria was with their idea of uh, that. Shoot, the earliest maps uh, of the Earth included uh, this land that that it went all the way down. And um, oh, oh, yeah, were they looking at the Pyrrhus map and thinking yeah. like, oh, look how big Antarctica was, and it connected to South yeah, America. Yeah, but yeah. then that, but you go up to the North Pole and you get the four. Uh, there was also this idea. There was some big rock up at the North Pole, and one of the maps shows. Uh, it divided into four, and they were like, those are the four rivers from the Garden of Eden, and the original Garden of Eden was at the North Pole, and this big conspiracy in the early Adam is Santa Claus! And, exactly. I figured it out! <laughs> well, there was a, there was a, and and this this overlaps with Latter-day Saints stuff. Uh, there was an idea that the Lost Ten Tribes, it says they went to the north, um, and, oh, gosh. and one idea That's far was north. that- yeah, one idea was that there was that the North Pole was actually inhabited by the Lost Ten Tribes <laughs> of Israel, and early Mormons actually suggested that there was a big wall that oh, wow. hid this lush, green, fertile land at the North Pole where the ten Lost Ten Tribes of Israel were comfortably living out now, there. Now, now we're getting to, into some Game of Thrones stuff. Anyway, yeah, exactly. uh, Aaron, <laughs> I, I, let's get back to Aaron. We have a guest okay. here. Uh, <laughs> I, what, what, I don't know. Do you have some favorite pet stories that somebody's come up with, some some favorite ideas uh, that, that they've used to explain things that just knocked your socks off or that were particularly goofy or fun? Ooh, ooh. So I do remember... Uh, some it was a YouTube channel. I don't know how active it is now called Spirit Science, and also connecting Atlantis and Martians and um, 
And I think the Jews were originally from space as well. And they all lived on Earth and Atlantis before the things crashed. And we went from like 12 dimensional beings to lower dimensional, three dimensional beings. And we're trying to get enlightened back up to those higher levels and then deflect comets with our minds and things like that. It's like <laughs> pretty much like the smorgasbord of everything in the new age. And then with a little more acid, uh, <laughs> that, that I think is descriptive there. Um, but maybe perhaps it's better to point to the things that blow my socks off and are real Ooh. the stuff that we can actually see scientifically that, Hey, not only are we able to predict where the planets are going to be in thousands of years, but we can project back what the universe looked like 13 billion years ago, because we can look at the afterglow of that early hot and expansion point and use our telescopes to actually learn about the earliest formations and distributions. And from that, from looking at that picture of the earliest light that we can detect we can actually figure out what is the ultimate structure of the universe. What is it primarily made of and its origins, or not just its origins, I should say, its projected future into the billions and trillions of years. The power that we actually have from the sciences, that is what will blow my socks off on any given day. I, I love that. I love, well, okay. So, you know, one of the, one thing that I realized we haven't done, and uh, I, I don't want to end on a downer, but I do want to <laughs> go through. Uh, what we've done is you've you've given us a whole bunch of, potential theories comets all uh, you know you know uh, conjunctions all of these things what we and what we did was we assumed that those don't work but we didn't mm. talk about why so so yes. let's as quickly as we can let's just dispel some of these why couldn't it be comet why couldn't it be a okay. comet so uh main reasons are almost always comets are seen as evil signs no one ever looked at a comet mm -hmm. and said oh yeah totally means yeah. king of the jews is going to be born uh, secondly uh comets don't pinpoint particular locations on earth if you try to navigate by comet you will be lost for a long time uh, -huh. uh if we go by supernovae you've got pretty much the same problems one is that it's hard to know if uh ancients would have actually even distinguished between the two necessarily Sometimes the records go back and forth in description of what's a comet or a nova, uh, exploding right. star again. Sure. Um, if you go by any of the conjunction hypotheses, you actually have a multiplicity of problems. One is, no, it can't point out a particular place. It can't lead you anywhere. It can't go in a direction. And also, how do you interpret those uh, various motions of the planets? Uh, depends on which astrology you ask at what time of day and what part of the horoscope they're in. Quite literally, we actually have like predictions from an astrologer and you can see that they are reading it and saying everything and its opposite in the same horoscope, same person, <laughs> same horoscope. You see uh, the same horoscope being interpreted like a few years apart and realize, oh, they forgot to incorporate uh, Venus into their interpretations. And that's why the king got killed. Uh, you find <laughs> out basically what does a horoscope mean? Whatever you want it to mean. We've actually right. even tested this with modern um, astrologers. So now it probably won't be a big surprise, but astrology is not actual science. What? When it How is tested, dare you? <laughs> when it is tested, uh, an astrologer can't predict things with their horoscope any better than chance. But what was even more surprising was that if you give a group of astrologers um, a list of personalities and a bunch of horoscope charts and they say match them together, not only do they not match them correctly any better than chance, but their agreement between each other is barely any better than chance. <laughs> so in other words, what does it actually mean? Literally anything you want, because even the astrologers can't agree on how to correctly interpret. So are we going to say this is how they definitely would have interpreted this conjunction of planets? Uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, I look through the manuals and people say, well, here's how they would have interpreted this sign. I say, I can find the exact same horoscope and it says the exact opposite if I flip through the exact same astrology manuals you use. Um Oh, and let's also throw out another interesting problem. The Magi, the wise men, this term uh, kind of gets confused in antiquity where um, the original word uh, Magoi is coming from a caste of priests in um, modern day Iran, ancient Persia. Uh, it becomes a bit broader to basically mean any sort of magician or charlatan in the West. But since Matthew is specifying these are wise men, magi from the East, he seems to be saying, okay, these are Persian magi. This has a few problems. One, why would Zoroastrian priests care about a Jewish king? Uh, they got their own king that they worry about. They have their own future savior. They literally believe their savior is going to be born uh, coming out of, um, of a lake. Uh, his sperm is in a lake right now uh, in Iran. They're not going to go to Jerusalem to find a Jewish uh, Messiah. And also what we can tell, the Persian uh, priests at this time were, if anything, anti-astrology. They thought that the planets were actually 
decrepit versions of stars that they had all been affected by the Zoroastrian equivalent of Satan, uh, Arhaman. So if they saw a moving star, they wouldn't have said, oh, let's go follow that. They would have said, oh, no, the evil one is here. <laughs> uh, so that's a bit of a problem. And also, uh, there wouldn't have been this really nice, you know, friendly chat between the wise men coming in and talking with Herod because they're coming from another nation that Herod literally fought to get his king uh, ship. And also, this is a Roman territory. So not only would these wise men be coming in and saying, who's the new king, not only would they be usurping um, King Herod, they'd be usurping uh, Caesar Augustus. And what do you think the Roman response would be? It, um, I give the equivalent in my book of saying, this would be like if the Soviet Union didn't just go to Cuba, but they went to Puerto Rico to establish a new governor. And what would um, Washington, D.C.'s response be? Eh, nothing. It's like, no, no, we should expect uh, it at least to be in the newspapers, if not a straight out war. And what do we actually see? Absolute radio silence. It's almost like the story didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a few problems. Just, just a few, just a few minor things. So, so let's, let's get to what we started with, which is the, uh, the poetry of the thing. Let's, let's get to, to a, a, a nicer way of looking at this. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to remember that the person who wrote this book was a writer. They were trained to read and write in Greek. They would have had an education where they probably would have had to have known uh, major Greek works. And of course, being in the Roman Empire, they would have known, if not read, um, important works about Greek myths, stories, and all the more so if it's literally part of the political fabric. If you have literally a cult to Julius Caesar with its temples around the empire, it's like, you know, you might just actually notice the symbols that they use there. And as I mentioned earlier, in like the story of Aeneas, uh, the found, like a founding figure of Rome, he was guided by a star. There are actually many other Greek stories of people led by stars. It's a very common thing for sailors to say that they were specifically guided by um, Castor and Pollux, the divine uh, twins and uh, sons of Zeus, that they would come and help guide sailors in stormy weather. So guiding stars like that, a fairly common trope in Greek and Roman literature. It has a particular penchant in Roman stories because of Aeneas and because of Julius Caesar, but also in the context of Judaism, the fact that Matthew um, very much wants to let you know he's got everything coming from the Hebrew Bible. There is this very famous prophecy um, in Numbers 24, Numbers 24, 17. It's usually called the Star of Prophecy. Originally, it looks like it was trying to point to King David, but it was commonly then interpreted as a general uh, prediction of the coming of the Messiah. The, uh, this thing says, I see him not now, but coming. Um, a star will rise out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. And this was commonly used for um, uh, predicting some sort of heavenly uh, conqueror coming from God Almighty. You see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You see it, uh, of course, being cited by the Christians when going back to the story. Uh, the very famous uh, Rebel leader of the last major Jewish revolt, Simon Bar Kokhba, his name literally meaning like son of the star, basically like trying to like scream, I am the prophesized one. And this, pro and this, apparently this uh, uh, propaganda work, we even have found like inscriptions of like his name, like in a star, uh, like inside caves and that. So it's like, clearly this was part of the propaganda we see it in its coinage. Everyone was using this prophecy um, to talk about the Messiah. So it kind of makes sense that someone would use the rising of a star to talk about the coming of the Messiah. <laughs> I think an additional thing to note, if if I may, what I've always found um, interesting, particularly about the involvement of the Magi, is the idea that the author does not have a ton of information about what's going on in the world of Iran in this time period. Mm -hmm. But the idea that the the birth of Jesus would be so thoroughly inscribed upon the natural world that even someone from another nation would be able to recognize what's going on here. Oh, yeah. I think is is a very poetic mm. part in my in my mind that the author is saying this is so interwoven into the fabric of the universe that even they can recognize it. And even our king, who's supposed to be Jewish, was like, oh, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's that, kind of that mocking. So well to the, it, it attaches so well to the poetry because in many ways, the beginning and end of the story are trying to mirror each other. Um, uh, people have pointed out, hey, uh, at the beginning of the story, you have this rising star. At the end of Jesus' life, you have the star, the sun going dark. Um, you have at the very end of the story, the great commission also to go out to the Gentiles who are the first people to come and worship Jesus, literal Gentiles. And of course, 
at very early on, you have established who are the enemies of Jesus in the story. It's the um, Jewish authorities, uh, Herod and the scribes and Pharisees. And who becomes the enemies later on? Oh, the scribes and Pharisees later on as well. Um, so it seems like Matthew is very consciously trying to connect the beginning and the end in ways that can only be done by being a creative and good writer. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, Aaron Adair, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find your book, where can they go to uh, to check you out? Uh, Amazon is probably the best way to get the book itself. To find me more generally, I'm on the social medias. I have a website, draaronadair.com, that will be a bit of a link farm for things. I have a YouTube channel, but it's uh, mostly covered in cobwebs, so it's probably not an active place to go. Um, in fact, the last video I did, um, did on there was to also um, steal Dan's style of TikToking. <laughs> so uh, it's not even original in many ways. So, so stick with Dan's uh, work there. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, people can go and still see your, your videos. I'm sure they'll be interested. <laughs> and you, uh, the Star of Bethlehem, uh, a skeptical view that was published uh, about 10 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, 2013. So, and I think it came out in August. So trying to think, would that make it a Gemini? <laughs> <laughs> and what's that, uh, that is what, a Leo book, my friend. That is a Leo <laughs> book. And what actually, depends on which astrological system, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> and what is your new one? Uh, the new one is called Aliens and Religion, Where Two Worlds Collide. I will also not only boast that this is an interesting combination of science and religion, but it, as far as I know, it is the only theology book that solves differential equations to come to conclusions. All right. I'll give Excellent. you that one. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, so it, uh, get out there and, and and read Aaron's book, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Aaron. Friends at home, if you would like to become a part of making this show go, get early access to an ad-free version of every show, and maybe even hear someone like Aaron come on and talk more alien stuff uh, with our patrons-only content, you can go to patreon.com slash data over dogma if you want to uh, write anything to us please feel free to do so uh, the address is contact at data over and we will see you again next week bye everybody data over dogma is a member of the airwave media podcast network it is a production of data over dogma media llc copyright 2023 all rights reserved Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.